Um, if we haven't met before, my name is Colin. I, I work here, and I kind of help oversee what we call Bridgetown Communities, along with Gavin, who you just met. Uh, if you have a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. If you've been with us, you know that we tend to run two teaching series at any given time. We'll spend a couple weeks teaching through what we call a practice. So time-tested spiritual disciplines, principles, and habits from the life and teachings of Jesus, like prayer and fasting, and most recently, hospitality. And then we'll take a break from those practices and teach through, for a couple weeks, a book of the Bible, line by line. Uh, so tonight we're going to pick up in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we have a big passage to cover, so stick with me. I'll read a big piece of it to start, and then we'll kind of finish the rest of the passage uh, throughout the night. But I would just encourage you, just go read the whole thing on your own. It's 28 verses, which is why I'm not going to read it all out loud. Uh, but let's start at 9, verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near or is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. I decided that I wanted to be a pastor at around 14 years old. And I remember at that time, as I would tell people that I wanted to be a pastor, uh, the almost unanimous response was something like, oh, that's great, good for you, that's awesome. Uh, even my dad, who is not a father of Jesus, would kind of swell with this paternal pride as he would tell his friends, my son wants to be a preacher. But now the story is, is different. About a year and a half ago, I was working at Apple, just here in downtown, and working on my uh, master's degree at Western on the other side of the river. It was making small talk with a coworker and mentioned in passing that I was in grad school. So the natural question came up, what are you studying? And typically in a moment like that, I would keep it really kind of general, something like, oh, I'm studying theology or religion, which leaves lots of room for interpretation to what that means. Uh, but this time I was more direct. I said, oh, biblical and theological studies. To which his response was, oh, you're one of those. And in that moment, I went into this kind of low-grade panic because I knew that in his mind, one of those meant all these things that I didn't want to be associated with. All these things that I deeply believed were actually far from the way of Jesus. That moment of feeling misunderstood. Have you ever had a moment like that? Perhaps in a coffee shop or with a coworker. And then on the other hand, um, there are conversations like I had a few weeks ago. I was flying home from California, and I fully intended on spending my two-hour flight 
reading Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban and eating those really good cookies they give you on Alaska Airlines. Like, you know, anyone know those? They're so freaking good. I just can't, I can't handle them. But that was my plan. Uh, and instead, what unfolded was this fascinating two-hour conversation with the woman next to me on the plane. And midway through our conversation, she stopped and asked me, so what do you, what do, you do? And to which I said, I'm a pastor. And she, without exaggeration, laughed at me, like a throw your head back, ha, laugh at me, like to my face, and not completely in a, in a mean way, but in a way that was almost surprised. And for two and a half hours, we talked everything from Aldous Huxley to the digital age and how it stunted our ability to relate to other people, to the human longing for intimacy and connection, to ultimately the way of Jesus and the kingdom of God. And she was open. She even, as we would talk about Jesus, she would kind of lean in, curious, and not, not on board, but not angry, not off-put. And I'm sure many of us have had both, kind of, both kinds of interactions. This kind of tension exists because we know that in our city, we are not the majority. For better or for worse, Christianity is not Portland's power broker. We are, in biblical terms, in exile. So you will be looked down upon. You will be lumped in with bigots and maybe assume that because you follow Jesus, you're unintelligent and you haven't read a lot of books. And there will be moments where you feel misunderstood. Yet on the other hand, there will be moments where people catch a glimpse and they lean in. Where they're curious about what Jesus would have to say because in their bones, they long for the kingdom of God. They long to be healed, long to be in relationship with God and other peoples. Or in the words of Jesus, the harvest is plentiful. We, we live in this tension. So coming to our text, we could talk a lot about uh, Jesus' ministry through the disciples, the specific content of their ministry, what they did. But for now, the only point I want you to notice is made most directly in 7 and 8. Look down with me, 10-7. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Notice that string of verbs that are used there. Proclaim, heal, raise, cleanse, cast out. What has Jesus, if you've been following Matthew, what's Jesus been doing the last couple chapters? Proclaiming, healing, raising, cleansing, and driving out. In fact, this verse echoes two other points in Matthew's gospel. One in 4.23, when Matthew kind of summarizes Jesus' whole ministry saying this. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And then again, we have almost an identical verse that we just read in 9.35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. And here, now in our passage, all of these verbs, which had previously been only applied to Jesus, are now being shifted and applied to his disciples. And Matthew and Jesus are, are being intentional here, and they're making this point, that at the heart of discipleship is imitating Jesus and carrying out his work in the world. Or as we've said around Bridgetown before, that apprenticeship to Jesus means you organize your life around three goals. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and eventually do the things that Jesus did. 
Now, as I've said, we could spend a lot of time on each of those verbs. We could talk about what does it mean to proclaim the gospel? What is the gospel in our day and age? Or what does healing look like? Or maybe a seven-part class on how to cast out demons. But I will let John Mark handle that one. Uh, what I'm more interested in is this question. What does Jesus have to say to his disciples who are trying to do this in a post-Christian city like Portland? Put more directly, what would Jesus have to say to a group of disciples trying to do his work in a city, time, and place where followers of Jesus are often seen as bigoted, narrow-minded, and a threat to the common good? Where one conversation may feel like stepping on a social landmine, and another conversation opens the door for beautiful, Jesus-y conversation. Uh, luckily for us, Jesus' disciples were in a similar situation, that on one hand, Jesus' disciples faced persecution and op—excuse op, me, persecution, opposition greater than we could ever understand. And on the other hand, crowds were following Jesus, leaning in to hear what he has to say, to catch a glimpse of what he was up to. So in a world like theirs and ours, how are followers of Jesus supposed to show up in the world? What sort of posture are we to take? As we look through the rest of our passage, I want to propose four postures for our time and place. Let's pick up in 10 verse 1. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and heal every disease and sickness. Skip down to verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Just notice that for a second, the number 12. Uh, if you were a first century Israelite, you would be struck by that number. Uh, the people of Israel were God's chosen people, a whole people dedicated to doing the work of Yahweh in the world so that goodness and beauty could be restored to God's creation. And this chosen people consisted of 12 tribes. And now G comes along Jesus of Nazareth, who's been proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, teaching from the Torah, and he f chooses to follow him, not 10, not 11, but 12 disciples. So what, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is forming a new people who restore peace and goodness by carrying out his work in the world, and they'll do it together, which leads to our first posture that in our time and place, followers of Jesus have to do Jesus's work together, not alone. Together, not alone. There is no lone wolf discipleship to Jesus. Uh, the gospel emphasizes this by sending the disciples out in twos. Notice how all the disciples are broken into pairs. We have Simon and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip, and Bartholomew. All the way through, they're sent out in pairs, two by two. Further still, every single you and your in this passage will cover 28 verses in total. Every single one of those yous and yours is plural. So that Jesus assumes that if we're going to do this, we have to do it together. That if these disciples had any chance at carrying out Jesus's work, it had to be together in community. And the same is true for us. That's because if you set out to change the city alone, it is much more likely that the city will end up changing you. Our city has this tremendous pull on the human heart. And if you are not aware, it'll gently pull you right into its way of thinking and its way of being. Our city is like a cultural river that will quietly carry you out of discipleship to Jesus and into discipleship to something else. 
And this is just one of the reasons why we need community. We need followers of Jesus to turn our sights back to Jesus, for his vision, for his way, to turn our eyes so that we can see the world and even see Portland clearly. And coming to a two-hour gathering on a Sunday night will not cut it. As great as Sunday nights are, they are not enough to anchor you in discipleship to Jesus. You need more. And the reality is, if you spend two hours on a Sunday night here versus the 166 hours you spend in our city every single week, the 166 hours are going to win every time. They don't stand a chance. So maybe for you, the first step in imitating Jesus to doing his work in our city means that the next round of basics, you sign up to join a Bridgetown community and you commit to practicing the way of Jesus with 10 to 15 people who live in your part of the city. Or maybe you're already in a community, and now the step for you is just to start showing up every week, to showing up to your community on, on Tuesday nights, showing up on Sunday nights, and allowing those rhythms to anchor your heart in discipleship to Jesus. Or maybe further still, you're in a community, but there's parts of you that you've kind of been blocking off from your community as if it's safer to hide those parts of you. They can't see that part of me. And maybe the invitation of Jesus would be to step in, to get closer to these people so that you can actually be formed to do Jesus' work in our city. Whatever your step is, if we're serious about doing Jesus' work in the world, we'll have to do it together, not alone. Let's jump down to verse 9. Jesus instructs his disciples saying this, do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts, just in case you're tucking precious metal in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. In Jesus' day, it was not uncommon for traveling teachers and philosophers to collect money from those that they taught. And an extra shirt and sandals would be considered just basic comforts in that world. Uh, even the poor among Jesus' society would have an extra shirt and some sandals for their feet. But the disciples of Jesus instead are asked to resist these comforts for the sake of their mission and their message. Lest someone accuse them of preaching for money or for social benefits. Uh, we've all seen some televangelists wearing a nice suit, flying in a jet, and then asking to give your money, and you'll have a great reward in the kingdom of heaven. And you kind of have that gross, sinking feeling in your gut. You don't trust them. It seems like Jesus is up to something similar here. Now, I wish we had a time for a deep dive into simplicity, or what is in trendier terms often called minimalism, which is uh, definitely in this passage. But for now, we don't have much time. And there's a great teaching that Josh did a few months back that you can check out. But for now, let's pick up verse 11. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Uh, Jesus' next instructions have to do with lodging on the journey. Uh, Jesus' disciples were to go two by two with little supplies and asking for no money. And when they enter a town, find a worthy or a receptive person, someone who would receive them, to take them in and then stay at that house until they leave that town. 
These host homes would then kind of serve as like a missionary outpost for the entire time that they were in that city. And there's some strategy here that by doing this, the disciples save time. Instead of jumping from place to place, they stay and they hunker down at one spot. Uh, And further, they can avoid the suspicion that they're out for some sort of monetary gain, as if they're just trying to take money from as many people as they can. But even these benefits don't seem to get to the heart of it. Because think about it, doesn't it seem like it'd be more beneficial for the disciples to go from house to house, to become in contact with as many people as they possibly can, to get as much exposure as they possibly can? Come on, Jesus, put on your marketing hat. For them to be seen as many people as possible. Yet Jesus instructs them to stay. And I think that's because Jesus has something different in mind. I think that the great reason that Jesus asks his disciples to stay is because he wants to invite his disciples to a posture of presence, not distance. What's Jesus' strategy for reaching the world with the good news of the kingdom? Go in twos, into people's homes, sleep on their couch, eat at their table, and stay there as long as possible. In other words, that Jesus' plan for reaching the world was through relationship, through presence. It wasn't through big events, church services, or through reclusive distance. Jesus' strategy was to reach the world through presence, through intimacy, through seeing people face to face. In Jesus' world, hospitality was much more common than it is in our world, but the point still stands that all of Jesus' ministry was done personally, that Jesus saw people. If you read the Gospels, he's constantly seeing people. He's seeing the individual. He's seeing the one, and he invites his disciples to do the same. In addition to lodging commands, Jesus gives some commands about peace and about greetings. Uh, In Jewish society, friends and family would often greet each other with this greeting, shalom. Can you say that? Shalom. Shalom. Uh, It simply means peace or or peace be with you, but peace in a deeper sense than we often mean it. Uh, It served not only as a kind of greeting, but as a way of praying on behalf of the person that you were speaking to, asking God to grant them his deep shalom, his peace in the core of their being. It's a close, personal desire for the good of another human being. But notice that peace is not some sort of wand that they wave or an incantation that they simply ask over people. The peace comes and goes with the disciples. So when they come into a home, that peace comes with them. And then when they leave that home, the peace goes with them as well. Their presence is a presence of peace. It's all about presence. So as his disciples, Jesus will not be content with our distance from the people that he desires to save. He doesn't want us hiding behind our big churches, content in our tight-knit group of friends, all the while keeping people at arm's distance. If you want to change the world, you have to be in relationship with it. If people are going to encounter Jesus, they have to come face-to-face with his representatives, you and me. And I wonder if, and this is total speculation— But I wonder if Jesus were speaking to us now, if he would say something like this. I'm sending you out. The city will be your mission field. Find an apartment with reasonable rent. And when you do, stay in the neighborhood for the long haul. Stay there until I call you to move on or until you can't stay any longer or until you're priced out. Don't jump from place to place. But when you live somewhere, be fully there. Be present. In Portland, we're experts at being nice, but we're not terribly hospitable. And what I mean by that is that we really like to keep to ourselves and maybe to our own group of friends. So we like to get home from work and chill. 
just that's it. But here, Jesus assumes closeness. He assumes proximity and mess and relationship and all that comes with it. What if wherever you were, your presence was felt? If your neighbors and your baristas knew your name and and knew that whenever you came around, there was some unexplainable quality about you, some sort of peace that you brought with you that they couldn't quite put their finger on, but they knew there was something there. Or what if your friends and neighbors could count on you showing up? Imagine what it would be like if your unbelieving friends and neighbors had some sort of crisis, if someone goes, has to go to the hospital, or there's something going on that they need some help in, they need some last-minute babysitting, whatever it may be. And imagine if they could invite you in, if they could count on you to show up, to be in that moment of vulnerability and stress, to be a presence of peace. How might the city change if there were disciples of Jesus doing this all throughout our city? Pockets of peace and presence throughout the whole city. The problem with this vision, as beautiful as it is, is that it takes time. So for some of us to begin doing the work of Jesus in our city, we'll actually begin with our schedules. Maybe it looks like learning to say no. Uh, and not saying no for just for no's sake but saying no to something so you can say yes to presence, saying yes to being present with God, to abiding in Jesus, which is the central work of discipleship, just being with Jesus. And then beyond that, being able to say yes to being present with your neighbors, with your coworkers who are far from God, and with people in our city who need Jesus. They need your time. They need your presence. What will reach a city is not a Sunday gathering, a program, or a social club. At this point, there's great music, TED Talks, and CrossFit to meet all of those needs. Events, events are no longer compelling. You are compelling. Relationship with you is compelling. Having a meal with you is what will compel a world that does not know Jesus. What people need is relationship with the flesh and blood people of Jesus. They need you peaceful presence is what will change the world. Uh, For me, as we work through this practice on hospitality, I was just struck with this realization that I have way too many Christian friends. Uh, And, and, you know, it's so easy for me to get caught up in my Christian community and my Christian friends and my Christian co-workers and my Christian books and all my Christian stuff that actually I miss real people, that I'm disconnected from the real world and from the very people that Jesus seemed to be the most interested in. So maybe like me, your problem is not that you're not in community, uh, but the problem instead is that you're too connected to community. And maybe Jesus is inviting you, like me, to cultivate deeper relationships, deep friendships with people who are far from God, to give them your presence. Maybe this week your community needs to have a conversation about having a hospitality night where you commit to once a month saying, hey, we're not going to meet on this Tuesday every month, and instead we're going to commit to doing hospitality out of our homes, inviting people in who do not know Jesus so we can share a meal with them, to practice ordinary hospitality, to be a presence in their lives, or whatever it looks like for you. Okay, so we've covered two postures, together, not alone, presence, not distance, And all of that sounds really good when you're met with kindness and people are excited to hear about Jesus. 
But what about when the disciples were rejected? We just read in verse 14 that when met with rejection, disciples of Jesus did not use force, anger, manipulation, or violence to get their way. Think with me. Jesus did not force anyone to follow him. Never. He did not force a single person to follow him. Instead, he extended an offer. The kingdom of God is at hand. And then the ball remained in their court whether people wanted to choose it or deny it. And as tragic as it is when someone distances themselves from the peace they were created for, that choice still remained theirs. So when the disciples are not received, they don't force their way in. Uh, They don't fight. They don't angrily utter curses against the people who didn't take them into their house. They don't even worry. Uh, They wipe the dust from their feet and they move on. Uh, They trust that the slow work of God is happening in these people's lives, even when they're not a part of it. We'll talk more about this in a second, but I'm sure many of us are wondering about verse 16. If you're familiar with the Bible, it's a really popular one. It says this, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Jesus uh, likens his disciples to three animal pictures, uh, sheep, snakes, and doves. The first image and the last image of sheep and doves essentially serve the same purpose. Uh, Both sheep and doves are meant to invoke powerlessness. Uh, Sheep have no fangs. They don't have talons to defend themselves. Uh, You haven't read a report recently about someone being pecked to death by doves. And if you have, please send it to me. Uh, But the point of both of these creatures is that they are nonviolent, they are non-forceful, they are non-threatening. They're utterly peaceful animals. And both images are meant to emphasize the utterly nonviolent and non-forceful nature of disciples of Jesus. But perhaps the more interesting image is the image that's in the middle of them, the one of a shrewd snake. What is interesting about that image is that in biblical literature, snakes more often than not are a negative image. So think with me to Genesis. According to Genesis, what is wrong with humanity, what's broken in humanity, is that instead of trusting God and his definition for what is good, and what is evil? We've trusted the serpent and his definition for what is good and what is evil. That we've fallen victim to his cunning, his craftiness, or in our text, same word, his shrewdness. And what's the cunningness of the serpent? It lies in his words, the lies that he speaks to you. That is how uh, the serpent tricked us. Yet Jesus picks up this cunning, the shrewdness of the snake, and he turns it on his head and then describes it of his disciples. Jesus envisioned a coming day, and Jesus in Genesis rather, envisioned a coming day when a son of man would come and he would crush the head of the serpent, that he would destroy evil, that he would destroy death, that he would conquer death by death. And Jesus comes along as the serpent crusher and invites us to participate in that work, to be the kind of people with our lives and presence who push back evil, who turn death on its head, and who crush the evil one using his very own tactics. In the words of sage prophet Ariana Grande, the light is coming to give back everything the darkness stole. And and how will we do it? How are disciples of Jesus pushing back the enemy? Through a better word, through a craftier word, the kingdom of God is at hand. So to be sure, followers of Jesus are in a war, but our weapons of war are not military power, or might, or manipulation, or force, but through good news 
Our weapon is good news. And it is in this level of peace, this level of kindness, uh, combined with some craftiness, that gives the disciples their ability to be a present voice in the world. Look down at verse 17. It says this, Be on your guard. You will be handed over to local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. Jesus envisions his disciples being brought before governors and kings. To do what? To be witnesses. To speak up. So Jesus seems to believe that because of suffering, not in spite of it, his disciples will be given tremendous platform, an opportunity to speak. And what are they to say? Look down in verse 19. But when they arrest you, I like that it's just a win. When they arrest you, uh, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. Let me read that again. Do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. The central command here is do not worry. It could be translated as do not be anxious, which leads us to posture three, that Jesus urges his disciples to adopt a posture of trust, not worry. Don't worry about what you'll say. When the opportunity for witness comes, do not be anxious. Why? How can the disciples not be anxious? Because God is with them. Matthew opens his gospel introducing us to Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And then he closes his gospel with this promise from Jesus, I will be with you always. And then in the middle of the gospel, Jesus' disciples have the promise that wherever they go, in the face of people who are set against them, when their lives are at stake and their words deeply matter, the Spirit of God will be with them and speaking through them. And if that's true, they need not worry. Right now, a lot of followers of Jesus look out what is ahead for the church, particularly in the West, and they're afraid. And our fear may not be of death, uh, but it's fear nonetheless. What about Twitter? What about political tension? What about our president? What about immigration? What about the rise of secularism? What about all the churches across the West that are closing their doors? What if I'm wrong? What if I look back years from now and I find myself on the wrong side of history? And fill in your own fear. For a lot of us, when it comes to representing Jesus, it seems to me that the fear, more often than not, is a fear of shame, of getting it wrong, a fear of offending people, a fear of being, like I said, on the wrong side of history. And how many disciples of Jesus have coped with that fear, because we always cope with fear, we always do something with it, is more often than not to say nothing at all, to avoid, to fly under the radar unnoticed, or worse yet, to compromise. And it is to all of those fears that Jesus assures us, saying, do not worry. It's in the place where we're most deeply afraid that Jesus invites us to not be anxious. That the same Jesus who told his disciples they don't need to worry about what they're going to eat or what they're going to wear or where they're going to live speaks their deeper fears even now when their lives are at stake. And he says, do not worry. That Jesus seems to believe that in discipleship to him, you can live a life that is actually free from worry and anxiety. That that's possible for you because the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus invites us not to worry. 
to trust the character of God, to trust his love, to trust the very news that we preach, that the kingdom of God is at hand, that there's a coming day when he will make all things new, or that there's a coming day, in the words of J.R. Tolkien, when all the sad things will become untrue. That as his disciples, Jesus invites us to trust the character of our Father, to trust that his disposition towards you is love and nothing less. With every conversation with a neighbor or a coworker or friend, to trust. Whether your platform is one person or a hundred people, we are to embody a non-anxious trust. And if we do that, for a city that is racked with fear and anxiety, we will become bearers of living water in a spiritual desert. Worry does not win disciples. A non-anxious presence does. Now more than ever, what the world needs is for followers of Jesus to be a non-anxious presence. Despite all the things that do cause worry for disciples of Jesus to embody trust in the character of God, that will speak louder than our words. Together, not alone. Relationship, not distance. Trust, not worry. And lastly, faithfulness, not compromise. Let's look down at verse 21. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. I truly, and truly I tell you, you will not finish going to the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Jesus doesn't pull any punches when it comes to describing the extent of suffering his followers will go through. For some of his earliest followers, following Jesus would mean betrayal, it would mean death, and for all of them, it would mean being hated. Jesus says, you will be hated by everyone because of me. And what's interesting about that phrase, aside from being wildly encouraging, is that it's in all four of the Gospels. So even though it is unlikely that you will be arrested, beaten, or put on trial, opposition is a promise for disciples of Jesus. But what I really want us to notice is the second half of that verse. It says this, But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. How easy would it have been for Jesus' disciples to alleviate their suffering? A simple renunciation, even if they didn't mean it in their heart, to simply say, I, I, okay, I, I recant. I don't follow Jesus anymore. Or even to say, you know what, it's okay. Caesar can be Lord and Jesus can be Lord too. He's not quite the same. It's just, it's just different. Or they could choose to practice the way of Jesus in secret, to follow him in hiding. But they don't. They don't do any of those things. And Jesus invites them to stand firm. That phrase, stand firm, can be translated as remains or endures or sticks it out. The idea that Jesus is after is faithfulness, not compromise. He wants his disciples to cling to him, to cling to his teaching, despite all the pressure bearing down on them not to. And in our, in our culture, the temptation to compromise is incredibly high. In my free time, I've pondered what it would be like to curate an Instagram account entirely dedicated to Portland bumper stickers. Just like lots and lots of photos of the things you see on the back of people's Subarus in Portland. It's like, meat is murder, keep Portland weird, and so on. Uh, but by far, one of the most popular stickers would have to be this sticker. The tolerance sticker, or its, its cousin, the coexist sticker. 
And on one hand, what these stickers represent isn't all bad. Be nice to people who think differently than you. Totally. Jesus didn't say you will be hated by all because you're a jerk. Uh, but on, on the other hand, this is why I pick on it, is that under a sticker like this one, there's a worldview. And it says to us, don't be so extreme in what you think. Be willing to fudge just on this thing or on that thing. Don't be so uptight. Don't be such a fundamentalist. What's the difference? It's all the same in the end. It's not aggressive. Uh, it's soft. It's subtle. It lures you in. And in Portland, this is the air we breathe. In our culture, faithfulness is more often not equated with extremism, and compromise is deemed a virtue. We live in a time and place where there are entire podcasts dedicated to celebrating the deconstruction of Christian faith. Like I said earlier, I have way too many Christian friends, and I was a part of youth groups and led a club in high school and went to a private Christian college, the whole very Christian nine yards. Uh, but what has been tragic to watch over the last couple years is from all those different walks of life, just how many of those friends no longer follow Jesus. Um, it's as if they got out from the safety of a church or a Christian college or a family or even a tight-knit group of friends, and the pressure of following Jesus became too much. And they gave in. And I, and I actually don't blame people like that. Uh, following Jesus is incredibly difficult. For a lot of people, it began with a compromise, maybe in just one area of what they believe, maybe with the Bible. Oh, can you really trust that? Do you really believe what that old book has to say? Or maybe it begins with one area of ethics or habit, their choice to abandon organized church altogether. But as they start to pull on that thread, they feel that they can no longer keep back the pressure to compromise. And before they know it, they feel like their entire faith is unraveling before their eyes. And one compromise leads to another, leads to another, to another, and often to rejecting faith in Jesus altogether. And I don't say this to be really extreme or to like freak you out, but just because I see it all the time. I'm sure many of you have seen it in your friends as well. The call for us in our time and our place as followers of Jesus is to remain faithful Heck, if I could distill down this entire teaching to one of these points, it would be remain faithful. That's it. You want to practice the way of Jesus in our city? Be faithful. Hold fast to Jesus in a culture that would celebrate your rejection of him. Stand firm. Don't give in to the pressure. Don't give in to the doubt that our city has fed you. Our city is a doubt machine trying to create in us cynicism and tear down anything you can believe in. Don't give in. Don't give in to the shame or the fear that's associated with following Jesus. Don't quit on community. Don't quit on following Jesus, on life with God. Don't quit. Stand firm. Because in the end, faithfulness leads to life. Faithfulness leads to life. That we believe, and we'll read this next week, that the one who loses his life finds it. Or in the words of Jesus, you will be saved that there's, there's life ahead for you. Okay, we've covered a lot. Um, to close, I think, Jesus' words in 24 to 25 summarize well. It says this, The student is not above the teacher, nor servant above his master. 
It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the household has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? I love that line, it is enough for students to be like their teacher. If you're wondering, how do I do all this? How do I actually follow Jesus in this time and this place? How do I carry out Jesus' work in the world? It seems that Jesus' one-line answer would be, be like your teacher. Be like your teacher who carried out all of his work in community. He chose 12 people to come with him to then change the world. Don't do this alone. Be in community with 10 to 15 other people who live in your part of the city and practice the way of Jesus together. Be like your teacher who did not love us at a distance, but instead put on skin and bones the fullness of the human condition and stepped into our situation. As Eugene Peterson put it, that God put on skin and bones and moved into the neighborhood. That God has loved us in relationship. So keep pressing in. Be a presence to your friends and neighbors who do not follow Jesus, despite everything they would say, recluse, back away. Be like your teacher who did not worry, but in the face of death and a lot of things that you could worry about, embodied a non-anxious, trusting presence. Trust. Maybe now I could even begin with just taking a deep breath in and a deep breath out. In your, in your mind, simply praying, Father, I trust you. Despite all the things that are in your mind right now to worry about, Father, I trust you. And be like your teacher who did not compromise but faithfully endured deaths that we might live. Keep going. Stand firm. You may be tired. You may be worn out. You may be racked with doubt. The pressure to give in and not follow Jesus might feel like too much but press in. Keep fighting to be faithful. There's life ahead for you. The kingdom of God is at hand. Let's stand and pray together.